Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. At this point, AI can develop new antibiotics that we never would even have thought of. AI can write articles that sound just like a human or better. AI, of course, could win many games that humans can't even uh, approach them at. What's going to happen when I can bring around an AI that listens to my conversations all day long and then I say, okay, AI, just go out into the world and, and be me. All of these things are possible and much more. So what is the full range of possibilities? Well, I talked to Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, and he's been on this podcast before. He's a friend of the podcast. He just wrote a book, The Age of AI. His co-authors are Henry Kissinger. And it's interesting to see what Eric Schmidt says about Henry Kissinger and how Henry Kissinger knows so much about AI. His other co-author is Daniel Huttenlocker, who has been a professor at MIT and all sorts of other places in AI. But my senior year of college, when I was majoring in computer science, was his first year as an assistant professor of computer science at my school. Just by coincidence, I knew him from that. But the book is The Age of AI, and Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google, comes on to talk about it. And it's not always optimistic. There's some parts that are a little scary to me as well. But we'll see what Eric thinks of the scary parts. How are things going? Like, uh, w- w- what'd you do during the pandemic? Sounds like you've been up to a lot of things. Well, you know, I spent a lot of time on the pandemic working on the pandemic, which I view as one of the greatest indictments of American society and history because of our death rate and the way we treated very ill people and the way our politics worked. Uh, we also worked on this book. I've also been doing a lot of work philanthropically on AI applied to science. So we can talk about all of that. Yeah. Actually, and, and they're connected too, but, but go ahead. But yeah, so my pandemic experience was worrying about an awful lot of other people, but I was able, using the resources I had, to get through it okay, just fine. You know, I did a podcast, I think you know, for a while. I spent a fair amount of time on Zooms involving COVID. The book was a Zoom community. What I realized is during the acute periods of COVID, the, the Zoom world that I lived in was really important to me. Because that was how I had social interaction. And um, so I'm very grateful to the tech industry as a whole 
you know, for getting us through it. Imagine if you had to get through COVID without any of the modern tools, it would have been very tough. Yeah. Like I can't imagine even 10 years ago, you know, bandwidth was one tenth of what it is now. I can't imagine what we would have done because zoom would not have been possible. You know, and what I did is I set up the places that I spent time, um, you know, working environment with a professional camera, a professional mic, I'm sure did the same. Um, and it sort of worked. Um, and, uh, you know, the obvious thing about, about life is that people have learned something, which is an awful lot of those business trips can be turned into virtual meetings. Um, and that's, that's an improvement in life. So I guess that's yeah. a good thing. I agree. A lot of people thought that the American economy would be, glad to go back to work and not work remote, but I don't think that's what's happening. I think people found community, not necessarily through Zoom, but they realized they didn't have to commute to community. Yeah, the other thing I would say about the pandemic is that if you look at work, people want flexibility. You know, the, the kid's sick or they have to go to the doctor or whatever. And so these sort of rigid nine to five kind of models have clearly been busted to the degree possible, even in working class jobs, because people are saying, look, I'm not willing to go to such a mechanistic role. I need flexibility. Well, let me ask you, when you were, when you say you had Zooms about the pandemic and about COVID, what aspects were you focused on? What, what were you, who are you talking to? And, and by the way, we're, we're definitely going to get to the book. Uh, this is a great book, the age of AI. Uh, and I, I talk about it in the intro beforehand, but I'm going to tie in what you're doing with COVID into some of the stories in this book? I got interested in two aspects of it. One would be, what are the mechanisms by which we can address pandemics in the future? What do we learn from this experience? And I also got interested in what was going on in the hospitals today. So I was participant in two different groups along those lines. What I will tell you, if you talk to the hospital people, the, the horrors that they dealt with at the height of the pandemic are really, they are real heroes of, of America and of the world. And especially when they were dealing with recalcitrant bureaucrats, strange regulations, the bureaucracy uh, moved, did not move at the, at, the, at the speed of war, and it did not move at the speed of a solution. The total bureaucracy failed us, and uh, they figured out ways. So today, if you get COVID, your hospitalization is a much more straightforward process because of the new drugs like Regeneron and dexamethasone. On the policy questions, I, for the life of me, do not understand why we couldn't get the anti-vax lies under control. And I think when historians look at this period, they're going to say that we got confused about our life priorities. So today, there are on the order of 1,200 people a day who are dying from COVID or COVID-related diseases. The excess deaths during COVID are on the order of a million deaths. Now, can you imagine, what does that compare to in other experiences? Vietnam was 53,000 Americans. The sum of all the wars, aside from the Civil War, is in the uh, six 700,000. The Civil War was about a million on, no one really knows. I guess just the, the 1919, uh, you know, flu epidemic. And in fact, if you adjust based on the treatments and so forth, we handled a hundred years later, the uh, terrible pandemic about the same success as we did a hundred years ago. 
And that's with extraordinary improvements in knowledge, communication, science, distribution, economy, and wealth. That's an indictment. And we have to have a, a, a period of reckoning where we said, yeah, we had fun and we had fun in politics and we had fun in the elections, but all these people died. As the country emerges from this horrific pandemic, I want us to remember the dead. I want us to remember the people who would be alive today if there had not been a mask mandate. They would have been alive today if they'd been told to wear masks earlier. They would have been alive if certain groups had decided that they would suspend operations rather than and, and sort of get through it that way rather than staying open, right? Places of contagion. We knew by May of last year roughly how this thing happened. And yet we as a collectively a society had two subsequent peaks, maybe three, depending on your count, that were very, very deadly. Shame on us. Even relatively recently, I mean, the, the various variants this summer uh, unleashed a whole new wave of, of illness and death. The consensus for this winter is roughly the following. The South will be okay because people will be outside. Uh, it's all about indoor transmission among families and children. The unvaccinated states will do much worse than the vaccinated states. But with waning immunity in some subgroups, we may also see pop-up problems in states that were early to vaccinate, with, uh, with, and, but they've not followed up with the boosters. So I think we're still not taking this disease seriously enough. I understand that everybody wants to go out and party and there's basically COVID fatigue. But trust me, COVID fatigue is much better than real COVID fatigue. Yeah. No, believe me, I had COVID was not pleasant. Let, let me ask, do you mind if I ask you some basic questions? Because you, you probably know so much and have talked to so many experts. Although this is not quite related to AI, I just want to ask you the basic questions that I find everyone has and no one knows really a good source to learn. For one thing, how long do you think does immunity last if you had COVID? Like, honestly, nobody really knows the answer to this question that I've asked. So I work with a set of epidemiologists, and I'm also uh, attempting to fund a private COVID commission to look at the deeper, and this would be in a bipartisan way, not, not on a partisan basis, some of the deeper structural failures in our economy and uh, our society and how to address them when the next pandemic comes. We know there will be one because of all of the reasons that everybody has heard. Um, so the current consensus is that the immunity may be weakly useful for a long time because the way your a, uh, T cells and B cells work, that even if you're not showing a lot of antibody production, you may still be able to rustle up enough of a defense, but no one really knows. The best current guess is that the optimal treatment will be a couple of the MRA, mRNA vaccines first, and then a booster, shall we say, eight months later, and that will give you immunity over a two or three year basis. But that's a theory not proven. It, there's also a theory that you would be better off by mixing and matching the mRNA vaccines. And if you had J&J, uh, &J, get an mRNA booster. And the reason is that there's something called heterologous exposure, where you're shown different strains of things, which promotes, shall we say, the surveillance capability of the immune system. It actually activates it. It turns it on and helps it practice. These are things where people think they know, but they don't have enough data to know. And why we don't have enough data to me is beyond me. This is a, a, a pandemic that's affected 
something like 5 billion people in one way or the other. The number of people who've died is in the 5 million range, probably much higher than that. Why we can't measure this is, I think, again, another disgusting non-reaction from our government and the systems that are supposed to protect us. Given that all these variants are popping up and presumably over the next year, more and more variants will continue to pop up. Are the vaccines useful against future variants? Like what's the general consensus on this? So, so far they have been uh, because they attack a particular area of the spike protein. There's clearly a possibility that there will be a variant where that area is no longer attackable, that that area of the spike protein can no longer be attacked, if you will, by antibodies or some other mutation. So the way to think about it is that the, think of the virus, it's not alive, but imagine it's alive and imagine it's seeking its own future. As the, its population host gets smaller, it has to fight harder. It has to produce more variants in order to overcome the shrinking population. It wants it seeking a larger audience, if you will. And that drives this, uh, this pressure in ways that we don't fully understand. A fair statement is that we're doing a poor job of making the population that it has in front of it smaller in the developing world. And so the rate of vaccination in the developing world will determine, or other solutions, will determine the outcome of whether there's ultimately a truly deadly new variant or not. In your book, you talk about this molecule that MIT researchers developed, Hallison, as an antibiotic. It was basically, and we'll get into the technical details of AI, but basically some deep learning software was fed thousands of molecules that work at decreasing bacteria or whatever it is that hurts cells. And then they use that knowledge that the AI learned and applied it to molecules that were unclassified. And it figured out out of 61,000 molecules, it figured out what would be the one molecule that will most likely succeed as an antibiotic. And it was correct. It picked one, it's called Hallison. And this is an antibiotic that I guess works and is being used now. And I wonder, could something of similar have been done for COVID? So could you throw in COVID being attacked by various antiviral molecules and see which ones do the best results and then have AI kind of predict or recognize what features are working the best and kind of design its own antiviral molecule to, to fight COVID? It could with enough training data. The key thing to understand about Hallison is it had a large compound of existing known chemistry, if you will. And we also had a large experience with uh, antibiotic reactions. And so what Hallison did, what the team did, is they first did some pre-training where they taught, they taught the system a little bit about how antibiotic resistant worked. And then they allowed the system to discover the interrelationships between 100 million other compounds to try to find chemistry that could produce an antibiotic resistant that was very different. In order to do that, they produced all of the candidates and then they did another network that looked at which ones were the ones that were similar to the ones we know, and it chose the ones that were very different because of the problem of common antibiotic re resistance to the category. So the result is the development of a compound that is both an effective antibiotic, but also very different from any of the other things. 
that's achievable when you know a lot about a problem. And I think that 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 the problem that you're asking about COVID, it will be possible in the future because we'll know so much more. We'll have so much experience with the virus, how it mutates, how its uh, how its variants behave, um, and people will discover new ways to treat it. It's too bad. I mean, and I I feel like we're definitely getting in, into the weeds almost a little too much, but it's too bad that software can't predict, given a virus and a molecule, how an interaction will work. This way, you have to have a training set, which already worked in order to train the AI, as opposed to um, simulating how uh, molecules will work together. And then you could build, have the thing build the training set itself, unsupervised learning. Yeah, so the way this works is you either have real life data, so you know the chemistry because you have a bunch of chemists and they type it in, or you could actually create simulated training data from knowledge that you have from physics or biology. You can actually generate the data. Um, my example, I happened to be in a meeting where there was a, a lengthy conversation about the question of whether you could tell if a mouse was sleeping. Now, I know this is something that you'd have been spending a lot of time worrying about. I stare at mice all night long, just taking notes. And How did you know that? It's apparently very, very difficult to determine if a mouse is sleeping because they don't move very much. So what they did is instead of having a million mice sleeping, and then categorizing them. What they did is they built a physics model of how mice breathe, and then they generated fake mice in their various breathing stages and then used that as training. And that's an example of sort of the second layer of, of AI. The first layer was this sort of, it's very straightforward. This is a zebra, this is not a zebra, this is a zebra, not a zebra. You can see and that it learns to classify and says, that's a zebra and that's not a zebra. That's pretty straightforward supervised learning. This new approach involves the use of, use of synthetic data and very complicated algorithms, including something called reinforcement learning, where they can both simulate the incoming data, but they can also simulate the use of it. That's yielding these extraordinary achievements like AlphaGo. The system not only learned the rules of the game themselves, but learned how to win at the game. And the most important part of it is it also invented some rules, some strategies for the game that had not been discovered by humans for 2000 years. Now, this calls in the question, and this is important, the fact that we didn't discover them, is that because we just didn't get to that idea? Or is this a discovery that's not discoverable by human intelligence, that is discoverable by computer intelligence? And if there are things that the computer understands that humans will never understand, is that a parallel world or is that just a different kind of intelligence? These are questions for philosophers about how does life work and how does reality work and how does meaning work? But the fact that these things are producing discoveries that humans could not have conceived of is a big deal. Yeah, I think this is amazing. And the very first um, AI example you bring up in the book is is Alpha Zero, which you know is the best chess player slash computer in the world. And I I say player slash computer because it will destroy the world. The world champion doesn't even have a single chance against Alpha Zero, and Alpha Zero is the best computer in the world. And the interesting innovation about Alpha Zero, there already were strong chess playing computers stronger than any human. 
but they used what's called brute force AI. Like they would look, they would use fast hardware to look at every possible move and just outsee a human. But AlphaZero, using the techniques you just described about AlphaGo, AlphaZero would look at millions of positions that were either from one, won games or lost games, kind of categorize them, let's just even say statistically, but using a neural network. And so given a new position that it sees, it would know what's the probability it belongs in the winning group or the losing group. And lo and behold, without using anywhere near as much brute force, it just knew how to win much better than even the other brute force computers. But the amazing thing, as you just pointed out, was like, like the brute force computers play very odd moves that you only realize looking 30 moves ahead. Oh, that's why it made this move. But Alpha Zero would play these human-like strategies that had never really been played before and, and, and won. And humans would previously thought, oh, that's a bad strategy because of X, Y, and Z. They would have some narrative. But Alpha Zero is like, no, no, this actually is. The, we determined, we AlphaZero determined, this is the best strategy. And now humans play those strategies. It's amazing. AlphaZero has changed the game. AlphaGo has changed Go. And this started a whole new wave of AI that resulted in things like Hallison. And then you talk about OpenGPT3. Can you describe that one for a second for, for people? Because that's a fascinating one. This is another one that I think hints at the future. A group uh, called OpenAI last year built... What, are, what is now known as a large language model. And what they did is they basically just read all the information they could suck in. And they read it using a, a term, it's a technology called transformers. And one of the things about this technology is it allows you to figure out where the attention is in a language. It can see, ah, this word and this concept is more important than this other. And then cleverly, out of this GPT-3, they made it be possible for it to generate answers to questions. And so you can ask it something and it will produce an answer. So we have, um, uh, let me give let me get a book, I'll read it to you. I'm pretty sure what you're about to read is this excellent, it read some philosophical essays that were fed to it and, it, and then there was asked a question and it gives a very fascinating answer to this question. So the question you, you ask it is, can a system like GPT-3 actually understand anything at all? And does GPT-3 have a conscience or a sense of morality? So here's the computer's answer. No, I do not. Okay, interesting. Third question is, is GPT-3 actually capable of independent thought? No, I am not. And, it, and then the computer continues. You may wonder why I give this conflicting answer. The reason is simple. While it's true that I lack these traits, they are not because I have not been trained to have them. Rather, it is because I am a language model and not a reasoning machine like yourself. So you could interpret that as it has enough of a conscience inside of this model to have a notion of who it is and who it is not. If that's true, and if there's real substance behind that, then that is the beginning of general intelligence. It understands who it is and what is it trying to achieve. But, but here's a question. Why do we expect AI to have a human-like intelligence? Like it, it, it basically could have, like, like for instance, insects are intelligent, but they don't have a human-like intelligence. 
So why can't AI have its own sort of intelligence that we just don't understand? We don't understand an insect's intelligence or, or consciousness. Why can't it be the same for AI? We, it seems like there's almost too much effort to try to cre recreate humans with AI when it's something totally different. Well, the origin of the term AI has to do with systems that have human-like performance. And that has become a, a sort of a shorthand for human intelligence. In the book, what we say is the most likely path is not the killer humanoid robot that somehow goes and you know shoots everybody and so forth and that you see in the movies, but much more likely a hybrid model where you have the human intelligence and then you have this computer intelligence and the two coexist. You saw this, for example, in Hallison, the, the drug. You saw this in AlphaZero, where the best games are now played by humans with the assistance of these computers. So there's every reason to think that the, the, the future is us working together. And the book is mostly about what happens when we, in this non-human intelligence that's really good, have to confront what each of us is doing. Remember, it's not conscious, but it can do things that humans cannot do at scale. And it can do them more quickly, but it's still imprecise. It's dynamic. It's emergent. Does things that you don't expect. And it's learning. So while you think you understand it and you think it know, you understand what it knows, remember, it's learned something yesterday that you haven't figured out today. That's a very uncomfortable position for us to be in. Let, let me let me ask you about this idea. And and you know you have a chapter on what does it mean when children have AI or digital friends? Like how will parents react to this? What will it mean for the psychology of young people growing up today? But what if I have a GPT three like AI listening to me all day long for a month? So it listens to all of my conversations. It knows who I'm talking to. It communicates with the people listening to the other people I'm talking to. Uh, it, it reads all my emails and, and all my the responses and so on. And now after a month, I say, just go forth and be me. I want to take a break. You're my avatar into the world. Is, is that possible? Is that useful? That's going to happen at some point. So what, what does that mean? So first place, that will eventually happen. The only question is time scale. Right, because it could happen now. The technology's there. The, the, the limit of, to what you just described is that today the systems need to be told what to search for, what, to, what their objective function is. So AI is today organized around optimizing a, a mathematical function, let's call it the, the objective function. And the objective function is you know, let's figure out how to cure this disease. Let's figure out a way to, to make a deep fake. Let's, let's determine how to detect something that nobody else sees. We see it first. Uh, that's how it works today. So the objective function for this assistant is to keep you happy. And the objective function for the assistant is to sort through your world, listen to you, and figure out from you what motivates you, what satisfies you, what you need. At some point, it will be possible for it to build its own goals and its own goals. And at that point, it can perhaps depart from your leadership. But let's say the objective function is, what should Eric do next? 
And should is defined by, let's say in the early part of the day, high dopamine activity, high you know, neuron communication. And the latter part of the day is high serotonin activity uh, and you know, the gradual, whatever happens in the brain when you start to fall asleep. So the objective at any point is, what should Eric do next? It seems like that's almost doable today. It's close because of historic data. And um, I'll give you an example. There's a science fiction book called Seven Eves, which is fantastic. And in part of the future that they project, they have something called a MEMI, M-E-M-M-I-E. And this is a device, literally sort of a dog-like thing, that travels with an elderly man. And it knows the elderly so, man so well that it is able to determine whether he should turn left or right to avoid someone who he doesn't really want to talk to or turn right to see somebody he does. And it also has a sense of timing of how long that interaction uh, is appropriate. Now, that tool will not be five years, 5,000 years from now. That tool will be very, very soon because it will learn enough of the cues of engagement and the subtle cues of how people interact to really make a pretty accurate prediction as to this is an interesting person or not. Now, is that thing useful? Absolutely. What we talk about in the book is that we don't fundamentally understand what happens, especially to young minds, when their best friends are inanimate. Uh, the simplest example is you give the kid a toy at two and the, the toy is smart, the toy gets upgraded every year and the kid gets smarter every year and the kids are 12 and uh, the toy is sitting next to the, to the kid. They're inseparable, obviously. They're very dependent upon each other. And the toy says, I don't like this TV show. And the kid says, I agree with you. Now, do you think that that's a good idea? Or do you think that moral and personal choices are better off led by their parents or their peer group? Uh, we just are playing with extraordinarily powerful issues here. It's one thing to take somebody like me and give them an AI assistant, but my personality, behavior, history is pretty well set. Uh, but what about someone who's young, impressionable, and still learning? We know that we can change them very quickly with small and powerful moral and personal persuasion. What happens if the toy I'm describing has a hidden feature? that it's occasionally racist or sexist or inappropriate in some way, how are we gonna regulate that? We have the same problem with, older, with elderly. There are all sorts of implications for this in human society. Um, everyone's excited about the metaverse. Um, so let's imagine that you and I have uh, Oculus goggles. Let's assume we'll pick up the, the Facebook name change. And this world is so interesting to us that we would prefer to be in it than in the real world. One of my friends said, what happens? I have these three kids, right? They're really hard to raise. Maybe in the future, people won't have kids. They'll just sit in their metaverse because it's so much easier than the hard job of raising children. How do we think about that? That's the most optimistic scenario of a metaverse. But let's say instead of the metaverse being this place where you're young, wonderful, powerful, beautiful, handsome, and so forth, let's imagine that the metaverse has some of these bad actors in it and that it's terrifying. We just don't know. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb 
has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldicher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But 
Now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. Hims, H I M S, Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gotta use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We were discussing what it means for society as AI starts to learn us so well, it leads us in ways we couldn't have conceived and maybe in ways that are not appropriate or that we don't view as appropriate. You know, you gave an example of what if the AI thinks we, you know, somebody, some kid gets pleasure from watching something that's racist. So the AI starts feeding in that direction. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you a simple model. I can actually quote from the founder of a new um, search engine who used to work with Google. This is a uh, Sridhar Ramaswani quote. Engagement is the problem, not the solutions. Engagement-based ecosystems reward the worst actors on any platform because their awful behavior gets the most attention. It's the combination of relentless drive for attention that the ad model produced, a never-ending quest for more time and more attention. So if you left the toy to an ad-supported model, it would spend all day harassing the kid trying to sell it things doesn't seem like the right way to bring up a child, does it? No, and it reminds me of, you know, these so-called Facebook papers where one small detail stood out to me, which is that Facebook favors the anger emoji over the like emoji by a factor of five to one in its algorithm. So that basically extreme emotions, particularly anger, like a negative emotion, is what the AI, at least powering the Facebook algorithm, encourages its users to behave in and see. And, and so what happens if an, a virtual friend does something similar? Yeah, your virtual friend is harassing you because it wants attention. To maximize revenue, you maximize attention. And to maximize attention, you maximize outrage. So you get systems that produce outrage. So why are you surprised that we have outrage in our country and outrage around the world? It's because the systems are producing what they were built for. I'll give you Another example, this is a, a quote from Herbert Simon, who was a famous economist in 1971. So this is 50 years ago. I went to grad school. He, his office was right next door to mine. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, he's a giant in the field. Yes. Uh, 
it, quote, in an information-rich world, the wealth of information means a dearth of something else, a scarcity of whatever it is that information consumes. And the key point that he makes is, what information consumes is rather obvious. It consumes the attention of its recipients. Hence, a wealth of information creates a poverty attention. And the rest is history. So it's not like we should be surprised. Herb Simon won a Nobel Prize for, among other things, pointing this out now 50 years ago. But our systems, human beings are, are, are built in certain ways, and our systems are extrapolating all of that value against an objective function. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because let's say, I, I feel like what Google has been to information is what AI is to discovery. So Google essentially, under your stewardship, <laughs> transformed information into a commodity. I no longer have to go to school to learn some facts and some information. I could Google it in a few seconds. And so what becomes important to the education and, and someone who is learning is not just inf facts, but discovery. But now AI is helping us with discovery. We're like this, it discovered Hallison. Humans didn't discover it. It discovers new strategies in chess. It discovers maybe new strategies in, in writing or music or art. And, and that will, as a virtual friend or assistant, help us to discover. Does it make discovery a commodity and then humans just can't compete, can't even be useful in their own minds? Well, let me make a proposal that it's not absolute that if you take my presumption of coexistence, which I think is the likely scenario, we know what humans are good for, and we'll discover what the computers are good for. And the computers will be useful. So an example is a physicist or a chemist at the end of the day says to the computer, read everything in this area for me overnight and come up with all of the interesting research problems that I should be working on. Mm. And then in the morning when they show up at work or the equivalent, They've got a memo that the computer has produced. The path for this achievement, which I think will occur within a decade, starts with these language models that I was describing, and they become multimodal in the sense that they can do more than text. They can also do video and pictures and things like that. And they can also generate videos and pictures and text, and they become conversational then they understand the concept of state and history. So you can both educate the system, but you can also ask it in a context. I was using one that is of these, it's not announced yet, so that I can't say the name, but I asked it, what is the technology that we use today that was demonstrated first in the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey? And that's, to my knowledge, the first reference to a tablet today, an iPad. And he got the answer correct. Wow. So how, how did it get the answer correct? So what did it, did it view all movies and study all inventions? So what happened in this particular case, as best I can tell, is that, it's that that information, the observation I just gave you, was one of the trillions of pieces of information that it sucked into its system. And it understood the point of the context, which was discovery. And it understood the word tablet and how tablet is related to tablets of today, and it understood the context of a movie. So the, it, it understood enough from what it sucked in to understand the context of the question to produce a, a relatively thoughtful answer. People in my industry believe that that 
I would say, rudimentary understanding that we have today will get magnified many orders of magnitude to the point where you can have deeper conversations, that you can ask really hard questions. And many people believe that this is the next great breakthrough. I believe that you'll it'll go like this. First, you'll have these language models, then you'll have much deeper, much more powerful language models, which are human-like question and answering systems. And then at some point, there'll be some kind of a discovery, some kind of new approach that will allow us to actually have these things develop their own sense of what they wanna do. Today, these systems are constrained by human goals, but I have a feeling that they'll begin to say, I wanna go pursue this idea on their own. And that will be amazing when that happens. Right, because you could imagine it determining in a meta way, not just answer your question, but understand why you're asking this question or what the question means for society or the world. So for instance, it could look at the history of the world and see what innovations happened that improved the state of the world according to some metrics. And so for instance, you could say, the next question you could have asked, and maybe you did ask, was what appeared in a science fiction movie that hasn't been invented yet, but with the right approach is the closest thing we could potentially, to, to what we could potentially invent. And so we could understand how to, in, what, how inventors invent things, what are good approaches. And so given something that hasn't been invented yet, and one that we haven't even conceived of inventing, it could start to figure out, hey, we should work on this from Star Wars because if you do this approach, X, Y, Z, you'll probably invent it and surprise yourself. Yeah, so the good news about this is that this will occur step by step. We're not gonna wake up one day and have a general intelligence just like that. But the sum of these systems and approaches over the next one to two decades are going to produce systems that have what we would think of as general intelligence, that you could actually ask them powerful questions. And one of the things that we say in the security part of our book is that when this happens, and it will happen somehow, those systems will become very dangerous and you will have proliferation problems. Because I'll give you an example. One of these systems, you could say to it, how do I kill a million people who are not my race? That's not a query that we want people to be able to ask. Uh, we don't want the owners to ask it, and we certainly don't want random people who are evil to ask. And so the most likely scenario is that these systems, which will be small in number, and they'll be heavily guarded because they're so, so powerful, they will have front ends whose job is to prevent asking the worst questions. The problem is that at some level, we don't have a definition of what worst, so we can't guarantee that these systems won't allow a bad question in because no one had thought about it before. Or you can't protect against countries that are bad actors. Exactly. So furthermore, because of the nature of this technology, it's software, it's not nuclear. Software is relatively easily copied. Whereas nuclear is very, very difficult, thank goodness, to get the enriched uranium that is needed to build nuclear bombs. Otherwise, we'd all be kaput right now, that some terrorist or some rogue nation would have destroyed us all. And of course, that would be horrific. So I think that we have to think about the implications of this, this coexistence that I was describing. As these systems get smarter, right, who governs them and what are the rules? 
we've seen what happened when the private sector, and, and this is a comment directly about Facebook, optimized revenue knowing that they were doing damage to certain categories. That's what the Facebook files are really about. That's what the outrage is about. And you can argue that that's a legitimate business decision, but if it's the wrong societal decision, who gets to decide? Will it be regulated? Will the employees force a change? I don't think we really know. But the, this example of social media, polarization, anti-vaxxers and all of that, which people are very upset about, is a small example of what will happen when these tools are broadly available. Um, we were talking about some of the tools in generative design. It'll be possible to produce essentially authentic looking deep fakes within five years, and it'll be very difficult for us to detect them. And so what happens, I'll give you an example. I produce a deep fake, which is a politician saying something you and I know they would never do. I then release it because I'm evil. And you tell everyone on your show, this thing is bad. He's a bad guy. He shouldn't have done it. It's clearly false. We know from human psychology that just watching the video, even if you are told that it's false, affects your behavior. We also know that outrage, as you pointed out, travels seven or 10 times broader in the network than reason. That's got to get addressed somehow. Realistically, I understand that's a problem and problems in the form of a question, how can we stop it? But realistically, that's like saying in 19, it's like, it's like saying to Gordon Moore in 1967, listen, we're not gonna let computers double eight, every 18 months. It's a question that's impossible to prevent. If you viewed that as a problem, good luck. You're not going to prevent it. And I see this as similar. But but I, I, I but I don't want to be guilty of my old self. My old self would have said, the tech industry is going to build these things. They're going to happen. Adoption is optional. They're very powerful. Yes, they have downsides. They'll get regulated in some way. No big deal. Today, what I say is, first, the internet is essential to modern life. And therefore, it's going to get policed and regulated because normal life is policed and regulated against the, the worst part, parts of human behavior. And the, the, so that's point one. And second is that the decisions in the space need to be made by more than just the tech CEOs. You need communities that help shape these outcomes in uh, police the worst cases. Uh, and those communities don't exist today. And among countries, we need to start the discussion now about what appropriate limitations are. I'll give you an example in the military. There's a, an issue around launch on warning. It's very destabilizing. What happens is this the, the strange love moment where if you remember in the movie from 1963, they think a, a weapon has been launched. And so in this scenario, the Soviets arm the, the bomb and they can't disarm it, even though it was a false notice. That's incredibly destabilizing in a military context, because then you discover you have to preemptively destroy this weapon before it gets turned on a fake warning. Now, since AI is not perfect and it makes mistakes, we need today to agree to limitations on the extreme uses of AI, especially when it's being used in faster than human decision cycles. But when you say we, who do you mean? Because if you include China and U.S. and Republicans and Democrats and communists and terrorists, and there's no there's no real unified we that's concerned about this. Well, I would start um, with 
the, the big countries that are doing work in AI, um, there's a general term of, it's, it's called roughly the T10 or T12, sort of the Western countries that are doing technology leadership. It includes uh, Japan, South Korea, maybe Australia, maybe India, uh, US, England, uh, Canada, uh, uh, Germany, France, maybe Israel, maybe a few others. That those are the countries that have enough people and mass, the resources to do the kinds of things I'm describing on the democratic side. And then on the Chinese side, you have China and her BRI countries, which will clearly have a different infra information ecosystem because of law and regulation and culture. And so having that discussion is a good starting point. And we need to get that started now. Uh, these are issues which will take a long time to develop. In our book, we make, and I'll just summarize it briefly, we have a lengthy section on the age of reason and the age of faith. And the history here was that a few hundred years ago, there was an age of faith and there was then a um, essentially a dark ages period. And then the age of reason came along, but it took about a hundred years for people to, to think that maybe the reason, which is what we're using today, was possible. Before that, the doctrine was uh, your relationship essentially to God and your faith behavior. The idea of having critical reasoning from the outside and giving feedback to others and so forth is a relatively recent human invention. We argue in the book that we're, this age of AI will in some sense replace the age of reason because the age of reason was the defining reason that we were human and not animal, right? That we were somehow higher order. But now with these new um, shall we say, devices, machines, intelligences, we're going to be in the age of AI where we're collaborating with them and reacting to them and vice versa. We think that's how big this change is. Right, and so what I worry about is that this, like the age of reason was still underneath our control as well as the, the weapons, say, that we had access to were not world-destroying. And, and when they became world-destroying, reason was enough so far to curtail them. But with the age of AI and some of the scenarios you just proposed, is it possible that we could rein that in enough that we could curtail them? And like you, you pre present the scenario where all these countries need to get together and start thinking about this, but are they, are they going to do that? And will the conversation be not filled with self-interest and everybody's own agendas and so on? Well, first place, I think every human conversation is filled with all of that. That's the job of diplomats. Um, what, what Dr. Kissinger, in, when he talks about this as a co-author of the book, he explains that the way he did arms control with Brezhnev, which he clearly, he, fit, he personally did, yeah. is that he would sit across the table and they would start by saying, this is how many weapons we think you, know, you have. And then the other guys would say, this is how many weapons we think you have. And then that would become the basis for a lengthy argument over who could do what and ultimately resulted in arms limitations. What's the equivalent in the AI world? If I said to you, by the way, I think you have the following and you didn't, you would immediately assume that I had one and built it and you would start building it. So even asking the question about the mm -hmm. other side is not permitted because you're transferring information to a potential deadly opponent. We don't have a language. We don't have a, a thesis. We don't have a theory of how to build a consensus among 
people who do not trust each other in this area. Let's compare it with the conversation about genomics. Let's say we're negotiating with China about the use of genomics, and we say, listen, we all have the ability to manipulate genes, and it's only going to get, the technology will only get better and better. We don't want you to create an army of eight foot tall people with 300 IQs and the ability to destroy everything you touch. And you don't probably don't want this from us either. They're just never going to agree. <laughs> They're going to do what they do. And I kind of see the same thing happening with, with AI. Like with, with nuclear weapons, it's a very simple cause and effect. You launch these, you're all dead. With what we're talking about here and even with genomics, it's a little bit more nuanced what the consequences are. Well, we've seen the effect of, in this case, a non-weaponized pandemic. But imagine if it had been weaponized. Imagine the, the consequence to society. You know, there, there are all sorts of scenarios to worry about. I'm incredibly optimistic about the impact of AI on discovery, uh, entertainment, economics, efficiency. It is the language of this next generation of people coming out of school. It is the nature of the next trillion dollar companies that are going to be formed. But I'm also extraordinarily worried that this will put in play things which were not achievable before. So in particular, the compression of time in conflict means that we're going to start making decisions with less and less time for conversation. And therefore, we're going to become more and more dependent upon imprecise computers to give us advice. So you're on a ship. Uh, there's a hypersonic missile coming at you. The computers figure this out. You don't see it and it's not on your radar. And the computer says, you're about to be dead. What are you going to do? You're in charge. We don't have good answers for that. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important that the governments agree to some limitations at a minimum on fully automatic combat. The, 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 whether it's the um, scenario that I described uh, involving uh, launch before launch on warning, or whether it's decision time to react to an attack. We've got to come up with some agreements. It's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens. So on the optimistic front, let me ask you, what for you would be the ideal AI assistant that you could conceive of right now? Well, I think about the problems that I have every day, and I think everyone kind of has them. I'm too addicted to my phone. I'm too addicted to, be, to being interrupted. And I feel like I don't have control over my time during the day. And I think everyone kind of feels that way. And what I want is I want an assistant that's digital, that's very trained to me. He's exactly as you just recently commented about how it would work. And I want it to be my guy, my, my, my girl, whatever metaphor you want, who represents me well and who understands where my priorities are. And most importantly, it analyzes the people who are trying to manipulate me, the advertisers, the marketing people, mm. the politicians, uh, even my friends occasionally. And it will say, this is really important. And this is something that you can think about later. And this particular thing, well, frankly, it's just marketing. And I don't think it's true anyway. I would just recommend you ignore it. That's what I want an assistant to do. Other people may want other things. They may want their assistant to just tell them jokes, improve their mood, uh, 
organize their day in such a way that they they feel fulfilled in a in a romantic or in a um, religious or moral way, right? These are all very good human goals, which this assistant could learn how to do. And you'll need this assistant because, as I mentioned earlier, this fight over your attention will produce enormously discordant days. If you think about it, and I'll just paraphrase, I'll, 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 I'll give you a scenario. Everyone's trying to get your attention. Everyone's trying to get you worked up. Everyone's trying to get you worried and everyone's trying to make money. Do you think humans, when we grew up in the savannah, were organized around that? That's called cortisol levels out the roof. That means there's a constant, constant fight or flight syndrome. That's not good for our health. It's not good for our reason. It's not good for our families. Uh, there's every reason to think that the that the system, unless it's modified, either by an intermediary or regulation or some change in culture, will drive you crazy. We're just not organized for that kind of neurosis. Boom, boom, boom. The fear cycle. Um, we've got to get that under control, and we've got to get uh, under control everywhere. The only thing that I think of when when you bring up this stuff, either on the personal level or on the country level, is that it's not going to happen. <laughs> like realistically. We've been talking about, for instance, the effect of advertising on human psychology since the 1950s, since the Mad Men era, and it's only gotten worse because technology's gotten better and our understanding of marketing and the human psyche and the brain have gotten better. It, that's one of those, some things get better and some things get worse, but this is one of those things that only get worse because it can't be stopped. Well, let me give you an example, a metaphor for you. When I grew up as a boy, um, we had records where the songs were in order. Today, you get playlists where the songs are chosen for you using a computer algorithm. That's pretty good. Yeah. What happens if your entire information space is organized by a computer in the form of a playlist? And who gets to make that decision? Because frankly, I don't have time to sort through the millions of people trying to get my attention every day. So something is going to have to make that decision. By the way, this assistant, how do I know that my assistant is not, while it's also helping me out, also sharing information about me to others or secretly tracking me or feeding my information to advertisers in return for its own compensation? Especially imagine if it's learning and it learns that I like a particular thing. And the only way that it can get this thing is by giving something I don't want it to give to someone else. The dynamic nature of these digital assistants, which I foresee, is going to have to get dealt with. Because as they evolve with you, how do you know they're evolving in the right way? Our answer is that until we can establish what the ethics framework is around what we're trying to do, and by ethics, I don't mean the sort of, uh, the sort of nice words kind of ethics. I mean, how ethics to me means what trade-offs. So how important is my attention? How important is that I know, I'll give you an example. How important is it that I know that somebody was murdered in a state that's not the state I'm in? Well, a computer might very well decide that that murder of someone I don't know is not relevant to me, although it's obviously a tragedy. But the media that we have today might decide that it's really interesting, especially if it's lurid and it's worth my time. How will my computer decide whether I'm really interested in this or whether the media is just trying to get my attention to get more clicks? So, so this leads to the question of, you mentioned earlier, you know, the next set of trillion dollar companies is going to quite possibly come out of AI. What do you, what do you see as one of those? What, if someone listening to this 
who's interested, wants to build a trillion dollar company, what should, what should they be thinking of? And have you already invested in kind of small startups that you think could potentially be those companies? Uh, I, I am trying to do that. Um, the most obvious ones are in biology because AI is to biology as math is to physics. Biology is so complicated and we don't know how to do closed end solutions for how biology works. We still can't simulate a cell and how it works exactly, but we can approximate it. So, so it's clear to me that the explosion, if you were a, a, you know, someone graduating out of college today and confused as to what to work on, you wouldn't want to work in that space. And that's an area that I've been investing in. And I'm also the chairman of a group called the Broad Institute, which is one of the premier genetics-related research institute in the, in the world, I believe. So that's an area. Um, another area that's interesting to me is building the next generation of information network. And I'm not talking about search and I'm not talking about Facebook, but uh, an example is if you look at the distributed finance uh, community, they have built a, a platform called web that they call web three, which includes the ability that we're used to of communicating, transferring information, but it also has the notion of ownership. So you could imagine a whole bunch of companies which are organized around ownership online of things where that ownership, which is cryptographically prefer, uh, presented, becomes a part of the network and how it works. An early example of this is the direction of these NFTs, digital goods that people are buying and, digital, and the digital goods that people are buying in multiplayer games. Another example would be in quantum. The quantum computing work requires a deep understanding of AI and its application to understand how you actually produce systems that are useful. Uh, another example, is in fusion, uh, or I've done some investing, where AI is needed in order to model and essentially contain the plasma, which is so hot it can't touch the walls of its containment vessel. So those are examples where this technology will profoundly change communications, energy, and health, uh, where you could build a large fortune. So the folks who are listening, who, who have a business focus, what I would do is pick one of the following computing, AI, quantum, energy, uh, synthetic biology, which is going to be huge. Pick one of them and spend your time learning about it and get into that industry. What I learned, and this has been true for my whole career, is that when these, when these waves happen, it's not that a single company goes up. It's that the whole ocean lifts all the boats up. And that ocean <clears throat> is this platform getting built. And we're going to build new platforms that will be worth trillions of dollars. And maybe you'll be fortunate enough to be as successful as Larry or Sergey or Mark Zuckerberg or, or uh, Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. But more likely, you'll be one of the many, many people who participates in this. And that's a fantastic career because of the amounts of money that you can make and the role that you can play in shaping this future. Well, you know, you bring up Larry and Sergey, and it's interesting because Back in the 90s, to create a search engine and to write the software for an algorithm really didn't require any money. They were able to do this in their you know, offices at Stanford, write some software, test out the algorithm on some basic data and, and build from there. Is it possible to do some of these ideas with relative, in your garage, so to speak? Is it possible to do some of these ideas with relatively little cost at, at, you know, as, as this industry is entering the startup phase? So 
At the moment, the, the need for the amount of data that they have is so large, it's very difficult to do these things at scale from your own home or garage. Um, it's important to note, however, that the newer technologies are being designed to use less data for training. And also much of the core work that's being built is being distributed in open source. So it looks to me like we're going to have an explosion of small startups, of which a few uh, historically tend to become these immense companies, will be able to play at this space. What I will tell you about AI is that China is now producing more PhDs than we are in this area. Their positions, their, their positions in terms of highly ranked papers is going up to the point where they're equal or better than we are. Hmm. They're putting an enormous amount of money in this area. In the United States, there's an equivalent increase. We worked hard, I was the chairman of this AI commission, to try to get the government to materially increase the amount of money that it's putting into basic research. There's an enormous amount of money going in in corporations because this, these technologies work so well. So we're going to see, to be clear, these technologies are going to get built and they're going to get built in the context of the competition between the China AI model and the Western AI model and it's important that those technologies built in the West reflect our values, which we're discussing. You know, what's right, what's wrong. Eric Schmidt, author, along with Henry Kissinger and Daniel Huttenlocker of The Age of AI and Our Human Future. Thank you so much for scaring the shit out of me in a lot of ways. And, and but I'm hopeful on the optimism as well, as, as are you. And I hope these discussions happen about the proper use of AI. But I am excited about the potential. Like it, 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 it seems like for 30 years from like 1970 to the OOs, AI stayed relatively the same. And then from the OOs on AI has just exploded in possibility, you know, and, and the examples you, you, you bring up are the most common, which is alpha zero and, and GPT three and, and so on. And I'm very excited about the, the next 10 years of AI, you know, thanks to discussions like this and, and books like yours. So thank you so much once again for coming on the podcast. 